I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Julie Cohn, the author of The Grid, A History of the Electricity Grid in the United States, as well as a research historian at the Center for Public History at the University of Houston. She is also affiliated with the Center for Energy Studies at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. Julie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're going to talk about several things on today's podcast related to the grid. First of all, what we mean when we talk about the grid, your book and the historical perspective that offers on the grid, a little bit about the power outages in Texas in February, and then the current state and the outlook for the grid. So with that, let's start by asking the basic question of what we mean when we talk about the grid, which implies a single unified technology, although that is not the case. That's an excellent starting place because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. The term the grid was coined in the earliest 20th century by a guy named Charles Mertz in England who ran electric power systems in the northern part of that country, and was adopted later as a way of conceiving of a network of power lines. What people refer to today when they talk about the grid is usually the collection of generating facilities, transmission lines, transformers that move power from the generating source closer to the customers. Sometimes it also refers to the distribution network, which carries electricity directly to customers like to my house. But it's really a misnomer. We have three very large interconnected power systems in North America, actually four in North America. The Eastern Interconnection, which stretches from the Rocky Mountains all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. The Western Interconnection, which goes the other direction from the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific Ocean. The Quebec interconnection, which is an independent network, and of course, the Texas interconnected system, which is also an independent network. And so when we refer to the grid, it's a nice shorthand tool for thinking about a network of power stuff that has to do with moving electricity around, but it's not really a thing in North America. And how did you come to focus on studying the grid? Well, it's a fairly personal story. I grew up in a household filled with electrical engineers. My father and both of my brothers worked in that area. My father worked for a company called Leeds and Northrop Company, and they manufactured high-precision control instruments, one of which became one of the key tools for controlling power on interconnected systems in the 20th century. So it was his life work, something he was passionate about. And in fact, something to which he exposed all of us as we were growing up. As a little girl, almost every family trip included a trip to a power plant and a control room, which at the time I thought was incredibly boring. I much preferred to go out to a playground or a beach. But as an adult, I began to think about how passionate he was about his work, as were his colleagues, and how even if they worked for a profit-making company, they felt they were really performing a public service, assuring that those of us in the United States who used electricity could have access to it every time we wanted to. 
And one of the striking things about your book are the photos of power control rooms through the decades, which give a sense first of how equipment intensive monitoring the grid and power plants has always been, but also how much evolution there's been in this technology over a century. Yes, one of the things that was really fascinating to me as I studied how we developed interconnected systems here was how much it was a high-tech industry from the very beginning. And part of the reason for that was that to make an interconnected link work, the control people, they were called load dispatchers at the beginning, uh, had to manage a lot of information. In fact, by the 1920s, they were manipulating data about the generating stations, information they were getting in real time from telemeters, using their own experience as grid operators, using forecasts of how much power people would need at certain times. And it became kind of a big data problem. They had so much information that they couldn't actually process it quickly enough to use it in real time, but they had to manage the control of power in real time. And so manufacturers started proposing different kinds of equipment they could use to do that. MIT developed something called the Network Analyzer, which was an analog version of a computer that could actually work as a model of an electric power system. And these kinds of devices started to show up in control rooms in the 1920s. They were more widespread in use in the 1930s and became critically important in the 1940s and afterward, of course. And so watching how these control rooms evolved was really fascinating. I know that the folks who were sitting at the desks in the 1920s and 30s looking up at a board with a drawing of their power network and an old-fashioned telephone to call each other about what was going on would be blown away if they could sit in a control room today with the giant interactive screens that show little tiny dots, actually little tiny arrows moving as electricity is moving across transmission lines in a control area. And of course, in the in the 20s, 30s, 40s, probably into the 50s, none of this equipment is using semiconductors, which weren't invented in even their most rudimentary form until the late 40s. That's right. They were using mostly analog devices and even preferred those for certain kinds of applications well into the 1970s, which I also find interesting. But there's a very good reason for that. An analog computing device actually is a mimic of a power system. And so, especially for newcomers to the power industry, it was a good way to learn how power systems really worked, not just theoretically, but physically, before they were in the position of having to make quick decisions in real time about what to do next. And you live in Houston, as the fact that you're affiliated with the University of Houston and and Rice would suggest. So you experienced the power outages in Texas in February yourself. Could you uh, tell us about what caused those outages and situate them historically for us? Sure. So there were four proximate causes of the outages. First, it was really, really cold colder than it had been in decades, and the cold lasted for a long time. In fact, the map of Winter Storm Uri shows it covering most of the continental United States, so Texas wasn't alone in the cold. Second, because it was so cold, demand shot way up to a much higher 
level than is typical for a cold winter day in Texas. And at the same time, because a lot of the generating equipment in Texas is not winterized for those kinds of weather extremes, different generating facilities started freezing up and going off the grid right at the time that demand was shooting up. And in fact, some of them couldn't get fuel because the natural gas pipelines were also freezing and were not getting enough electricity to compress the natural gas and send it to the gas-fired power plants. So there was a huge mismatch between demand and available electricity. And in the control room of the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or what we call ERCOT, the system operators could see that the grid was moving closer and closer to actually failing completely. So they called for, at first, rolling blackouts, but the outages were so widespread at the generating facilities that those turned into longer-term outages. For some people, from before dawn on Monday morning until sometime Friday of that week. So it was a pretty widespread and, in many ways, devastating experience. And power outages, obviously, are not new. As you're telling the history of the grid, they recur throughout your book. And especially important were the 1965 outages in the Northeast, which ultimately inspired significant changes in the grid. Could you talk about that episode in the history of the grid and compare it to what we may see as a result of the outages in Texas earlier this year? Sure. Let me just put it all into kind of blackout context. The first major power failure to affect the United States was this 1965 blackout you mentioned. And it unfolded in a way that was completely different from what happened in Texas. Um, There was a relay setting near the Canada-US border, and it was not updated correctly. So it inappropriately diverted power that was heading for Toronto to the south. Suddenly, there was way more electricity on the grid than there was demand for it. So each little power pool within the larger network had to either disconnect or try to fix the problem. Most of them disconnected. Some didn't. Famously, New York City didn't. Con Edison in New York City. And so these system operators were suddenly faced with too much electricity, not enough demand, great instability on the grid. And within a matter of minutes after the first relay switch uh, switched, there was a blackout that affected 30 million people in eight states and Ontario. And it lasted for a little over half a day with equipment damage requiring repairs for weeks afterwards. That's what's called technically a cascading power failure. So one little thing goes wrong, and like a set of dominoes, it causes outage after outage after outage, and the system operators lose control of the system. That's different in kind from what happened in Texas because we were heading in that direction, and rather than allowing that to happen, the system operators made the decision to initiate controlled outages So we still had the same experience at the customer end. You know, we were stuck without electricity, but from the grid management end, things were still under control. Between 1965 and today, I recently looked this up. Depending on how you count major, whether it's, you know, the number of people or how long it lasts or how much damage it causes, there have been something like 70 or 75 major power outages in North America. So more than one a year. 
And most of them are a direct result of weather events. So think of Hurricane Sandy or Hurricane Ike, or most recently Hurricane Isaiah, which knocked out lots and lots of individual pieces of equipment. That's yet again a different kind of blackout where from the customer perspective, again, it's the same thing. I don't have electricity, but from the restoration of power perspective, it's entirely different because you have to send out hundreds of crews to fix all the little pieces that were damaged by the wind or the tree limbs or the fires or whatever. And that is the most typical kind of power outage we have in North America. And then how has grid technology changed in the last generation? And and what might we see in the next 10 or 20 years? And, And how does that play into this as well? Well, the most interesting thing to me is that the technologies for controlling the grid have evolved so that there are smaller and smaller margins for error because the ability to obtain data and manage that data and use that data quickly has grown so much. So digital computing technologies, modeling of the system, collecting information from individual pieces of equipment like each separate wind turbine, all of that is advancing and changing the ability of the control room to automatically manage what's happening on the grid. But also when things are starting to go wrong, leaving very little time and room for the grid operator to respond if the automatic controls are no longer able to manage the scenario. This has great benefits for us because it increases the efficiency of our use of electricity, of the use of the energy resources we use to generate electricity, and in some ways is beneficial overall because the grid is more stable. But then when something goes wrong, it it puts us in some ways in a slightly more vulnerable position because, as I said, there's smaller and smaller margin for error. We talked earlier about what the term grid means. What does the term smart grid mean? And as we see more and more of the grid becoming a smart grid, what effect might that have for both utilities and customers? The smart grid. So again, this is um, something that's a little bit different from probably what people imagine. But what it means is that there's an ability to monitor more and more closely exactly what electricity is being used for at the customer end and to monitor more and more closely how much power will be needed in the next instant at the generator end. And the closer you can match those two things, the more efficient the system can be. And if you know that demand is going to go up, you can regulate how much you're using at the customer end to minimize how much electricity we need overall. So for example, let's say my washing machine is connected to the smart grid and we know that it's going to be really, really hot tomorrow or as it was in February, really cold. So there's going to be a lot of demand for electricity for temperature control in homes and offices. The smart grid could, in theory, tell my washing machine, don't start until the sun goes down, or in the case of a cold day, till the sun comes up and demand declines. And then everything will be more efficient and we won't need to generate as much electricity. You can imagine that this could be incredibly useful on the power generator end, because if at the power generator end, you were controlling all of these devices in homes and offices, you could truly maximize the efficiency of your electricity system. At the customer end, it could be incredibly useful because you could make decisions about when to turn things on and off in your home or in your office and thereby 
manage your electricity bills to be as low as possible. On the other hand, at the customer end, if you thought the power company was in charge of when your washing machine starts and stops, you might not like that so much. You might prefer to be in charge of that yourself. In terms of the technology itself and where it is, of course, for it to be truly effective, you have to have a smart home. And we have a lot of older housing stock and older commercial building stock in this country. My own house is a perfect example of this. It was built in the 1930s with lath and plaster walls, which means there's a lot of wire in the walls of my house. And really, the internet doesn't work that well here because it doesn't transmit from room to room locally very well. So even if all of my electrical devices were brand new and ready to work with a smart grid, it might not work anyway. Um, And I'm fortunate to be able to have a home in which I have newer devices. Many people have to rely on older devices, which wouldn't even be remotely ready to be connected to a smart grid. Of course, they could personally control what was happening if they were getting readouts from some sort of a metering or monitoring device about what electricity might cost in the next minute, and they could make adjustments themselves. You mentioned residential and commercial uses of electricity. Obviously, historically, industry was a a major consumer of electricity. How has electricity demand evolved and how might that affect the development of the grid? Well, what's really interesting is that overall, electricity use hasn't really increased in the last 10, 20 years, but it's shifted somewhat amongst different sectors. So it's gone up a bit in the commercial sectors and the residential sectors and down a bit in the industrial sectors as they've become more efficient in their operations. Um, But the other trend that seems to be happening is something that's kind of a turn back to the origins of electrification. So at the beginning of the 20th century, an industrial manufacturer often preferred to generate electricity in-house and have complete control over what was going to happen, rather than connecting to a network and ceding that control to the power company. More recently, we're starting to see instances where both commercial building owners and manufacturers are installing their own generating equipment, in some cases, solar equipment, in other cases, backup batteries, or even other kinds of small but traditional generating facilities. Again, so they they can operate independently from the larger grid if they want to, or if it's more cost effective for them to do that, or if there's an emergency and they need to still continue manufacturing while the emergency unfolds. Julie, how are concerns about climate change affecting the grid? That's a really important question to ask because over the last, let me say, 30 years, states have been moving in some parts of the country very aggressively toward bringing renewables into their power networks. And part of the impetus for that is, of course, to try to reduce reliance on fossil fuels and therefore try to improve air quality and also address climate change concerns. Wind and solar are great resources for electricity, especially with new technologies that make it more effective and more efficient and less costly to access those resources. But they have some problems, one of which is intermittency. And by that, I mean the wind's not always blowing. 
And when it's blowing, it blows how hard it blows or how fast it blows, I guess is the correct term. And the person at the operating end of the grid has no control over whether the wind is on or off or how much electricity the wind is producing. In fact, the only way they control it is by saying, yep, we'll buy your wind power or nope, we won't. Likewise, the sun is up during the daytime and not at night. And so in a more predictable kind of way, the sun is intermittent as well. But also if it's a cloudy day, then solar power isn't going to provide much electricity. Grid operators have been managing these challenges for the last few decades by balancing the electricity generated from renewables with electricity generated from other sources, including coal-fired power plants, natural gas-fired power plants, and nuclear power plants. But as the wind and solar generation increases, there's going to be a need for increased use of storage batteries and other ways of technically managing the power generated by the renewables to make to to counteract the effects of intermittency on the grid. Another aspect of this has to do with accessing those resources. So in Texas, we have great wind in the panhandle, but until around the early 2000s, we didn't have any transmission lines that reached that part of the state. So even if a wind developer built a wind farm, there would be almost no way to get the electricity into the Texas grid or into any other grid for that matter. And in Texas, the governor and the legislature actually passed laws to invest in infrastructure specifically to bring wind power into the system. So now Texas leads the country in wind generation. But in other parts of the country, that becomes more difficult because each state has to coordinate with other states to build the transmission lines Sometimes they have to coordinate with Canada to access renewable resources, and the federal government plays a role in determining where and when those transmission lines can be built. So it's a a significant challenge. You mentioned electricity storage, which has always been a real challenge in the system. How have we seen the ability to store electricity evolve over the last generation, and what might we see going forward? Well, I think we've seen rapid advances in the technology for battery storage, in part related to the growth of the electric vehicle industry, and also because this has been of concern to the companies that invest in wind and solar generation. We see that there are bigger batteries that can hold electricity for longer. We still don't have batteries large enough to cover, say, the state of Texas for a whole week of power outages, but we do see some that can help for several hours. We also see battery storage that is much more localized. So we know people are installing rooftop solar and batteries in their homes, and they can offer their families and households fairly stable electric power access, even when there are short-term outages. That's great. And I expect we'll continue to see this technology evolving and becoming more and more significant within our power systems. Of course, it's created a challenging problem on the economic side. The question is, is a storage battery a customer or a generator? And how is the company that owns that battery treated in the equation of who pays whom 
how much for what on electric power systems. And states are wrestling with this right now, and the, the federal government is as well, to determine, can an entity be both? And if so, how do we figure that into the rates that are charged for electricity? Historically, it's often been cheaper to extend the grid rather than build new power plants or sources of power. How is that dynamic playing out now? Well, interestingly, it's reversed with respect to renewables in particular. Right now, it is less costly and quicker to build a wind farm than it is to build the transmission line that would bring electricity from that wind farm to a electrically strong center of a power network. It used to be the opposite. So as you point out, particularly during World War II, there was a sudden need for a lot of electricity all at once. And the response from the power industry was to build more transmission lines and stronger and larger power pools so they could operate existing generating facilities closer to 24-7 and supply more electricity that way. It took less money, it took less time, and it took fewer essential resources that the country needed for other purposes. And as I mentioned, it's sort of the opposite case now. And finally, regulation of electricity is, I guess, shared between the states and the federal government. What roles do you see state governments and federal governments playing in the development of the grid over the next decade? This is a really interesting area of discussion because it has been evolving over the last century. And in North America, and in the United States in particular, this has been a private sector project through most of its history. So even as the federal government has entered into electrification as a regulator of wholesale interstate power transactions or as a builder of dams or transmission lines or as an operator of entities like the Tennessee Valley Authority, the dominant producers of electricity have been owned by private investors, and that's still true today. So the federal government, as you mentioned, has a regulatory function. It regulates the interstate transactions of wholesale power. It also has a reliability function, which is relatively recent. Uh, Congress established this role in 2005, following a big blackout in 2003. And that is a function in which the federal government sets reliability standards actually through an outside agency. And everybody, including Texas companies, has to comply with those reliability standards. But beyond that, the federal government doesn't really have a directive role in the direction of our electric power systems. And states regulate internally. They regulate the power companies in their state. They determine whether or not transmission line investors have the right of eminent domain to locate their transmission lines. They operate competitive markets within their states and so forth. So there are very different roles for the state and federal governments, and there is no unifying entity that pulls all of those together into a single point of planning and operation for the future. So what does the future hold? I'm not really sure. I think it's possible that as a country, we'll say, we need to address this nationwide. We need to see our leaders exercise the political will 
to take this over and make it a centrally managed sector of our economy, or it may be the case that the thousands of stakeholders who own and operate our power systems link arms voluntarily and say, we're going to figure this out together, or we may still see piecemeal development into the future. I'd probably put my money on that last concept, but I'm not a very effective gambler, so don't take my word for it. (laughs) Jolie, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus.